Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Every workplace has its own vocabulary. If you spoke about rookies, muster rooms or calling in the Ds, do you know what kind of job it would be? Well, I'm Sandy Wallace, as I said. I'm welcoming back to 3CR and Published or Not. She'll tell us the occupation, but not before she explains what a Freddy is. Ah, a Freddy. Well, a Freddy is a police badge. So that's the colloquial term that the, the real coppers use for their badge, but uh, it tends to need explaining. So, you know, as you saw in the, the stanza that I mentioned it in the police, you know, police badge to you, because not everybody knows what a Freddy I've is. I've never heard of that before, <laughs> and I've read a lot of crime. Is it called a Freddy through all police stations? Oh, I'd say it'd be definitely an Australian term. Um, and you know, even like I, I've got, you know, young cops call them Freddies too. So yeah, it's not just one of those antiquated terms. So well, yeah. last last year, our last book, I learned about cricket bats <laughs> and how they were made, and now you I've did. learned about Freddies. That's right. <laughs> now your book on the job has five short stories, and they're separated by segments of a verse novel. Now the verse novel's called the Job, but you've broken it up. That's right, yes. Well, there's actually six short stories and six sections of the verse. and you know, it just seemed to me, it just came into a sort of a brainwave that it would work really nicely to lay out the stories in 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 a sort of an order of you know Copper at the start of her career, and she's set up for anything. She could go in any which way, whether it's you know to squads or right up into the brass or whatever. She's you know quite talented. So, and then we go through you know coppers that have been in the in the job for a while, and you know there's various you know some are in uniform, some are in uh, plain clothes, a homicide squad. And then we finish up. The last story is with a copper on the brink of retirement. Mm. And the, the verse is just, a, you know, another little story. It's just another type of story, but it's just to introduce each one and, and what their main points sort of are. Well, as you say, in the first one we have um, very positive. Oh, we're going to, you know, finding the truth, putting away the culprit is a good day in the office. And from the negative first novel, I'd mm. like to read just a small bit from sure. page 19. Sure. Uh, some things can't be unseen or unfelt, unsmelt or unheard. They churn in your gut, bang in your brain like wet towels in a dryer, drip off your tongue too quickly or stick in your throat, impossible to say. Can't sleep because the flashbacks are worse. Imprinted on the inside of your eyelids, they play over and over and over again. Too loud, too bright, too clear, too horrific. Oh, yes, yes. Post-traumatic stress disorder. I think absolutely, we yeah. absolutely hear yeah. about that mm. with a lot of them. So let's start with the more happy short story. <laughs> this is Busted. Yes. Now, Nessa meets, meets Jake. Why does she lie about her job. Oh well, you see, she gets some very strange reactions when she admits what she does, and some, you know, decide that they like to proposition her with what they could do, what she could do with her, you know, service weapon or oh. her handcuffs. Others want to run a mile or jump on their soapbox and give her a bit of a lecture. So she tends to hold back a little bit before she opens up about what she does, and she calls her. She says she's in childcare, which doesn't seem too far from the truth. <laughs> <laughs> now they have a strange meeting, a strange romance. They they meet at a four. 4am exercise routine but then she really worries whether he could be the possible burglar that's Uh right (laughs) 
And then we go to a real negative one. And this is this short story, Impact, about the worst of police jobs. Well, let's just hear uh, Sandy Wallace reading from her short story in the book On the Job. The Fireys beat the Ambos. A patrol car joined the line-up with two of their blokes. Onlookers gathered, shocked, yet transfixed, unable to turn away from the sight that would haunt their dreams. While the cops tried to breathe life back into the limp body, the rest of the emergency crew settled into the industry of disaster. Control the crowd, secure the area, set up detours. Pratt and McCain kept breathing and pumping until the paramedics arrived and took over. Hope sparked with a brief return of beat on the monitor, but even as the Ambos loaded the child into their truck, the veteran cop knew she'd be DOA. The ambulance disappeared, lights and bells screaming. Only then did McCain say to his constable, It's Bella. When the ambulance tore away and he named the local child, she saw him lose it. The signs, stricken eyes, taut jawline and quivering mouth. She dragged him to the van and let him cry, realising he'd hate their colleagues or the fireys to see his breakdowns. She'd patted his arm, muttered the usual well-meant but essentially futile placations and predicted they, would never, they wouldn't talk of it ever. Wouldn't talk about it ever. And this is, this is the whole emotion in that yeah. story. Yeah. And, of course, these, these two policemen, police people have to go off and tell the poor Bella's parents. That's right. You oh. can imagine that would be pretty much the worst type of job you'd have to do with it. Absolutely. But this... This short story took me to places that I never thought I'd go, which, you know, is, is the surprise of a short story oh, too. Right. Okay. Mm, yeah. Yes, I really thought that was great. Thank you. And then we move on to the next short story, Hot Patrol. And really is it a prerequisite of, uh, of all policemen to have thick skins and trashy mouths? I think it probably helps. <laughs> <laughs> it's pro- possibly better that than hit the bottle or something like that. So I guess you, you have to have your ways of dealing with things. So I don't think everyone it t- deals with it the same way, but I'd say there'd be a fair bit of, be a fair bit of both needed. <laughs> and you introduced a new term here, a, a nerfy, an N-U-P-H-Y. Yes, that's right. Oh. Needs um, urgent psychological help yesterday. That's right. And that's what uh, Sally just, you know, encounters that night. <laughs> Full moon. Mm, I've heard yes, about that. Yes, definitely. Losing Heidi. Yes. Oh, missing new persons. And... Really, what happens with the response to appeals that sort of through the story? Yeah, um, as in the, the the public appeals. Yeah, yeah. Just sort of they once again get a lot of strange people ringing in, and they, they uh, do. Yeah, I mean, with any investigation, that you, you've got to wade through the reports that are well meant, but basically have nothing in it for you to deal with. Um, the lies people would tell, the, the, the people looking for their, you know, five minutes of fame or whatever it is, and then the, the people that are closely associated with the, the missing people and whether they are being truthful when when they, you know, send out an, an appeal for mm. their loved one to come home, you know, is is that really, you know, actually, you know, there's a, there's a lot that gives them away if, it, if it's not, well, you know, tr- truly from the heart, so... The last short story is called Out of the City and you've moved the police, you've moved them, as a quote from the book, one member station is an isolated seaside country town. Now, would it be ideal? Would it be easier policing? Oh, (laughs) no. (laughs) That's right. You know, you'd think that it it could be, but obviously then the the other side is that you're going to know everybody in your town except for, you know, tourists and at this time it it ain't Silk versus Sierra. It's off-season, so there's not really any tourists 
us around. It's the locals and a couple of people that have come down from from the city and they're and she, and creating havoc for our local cops. So with, with a high speed car chase now. During that car chase, um, the police, the policewoman there, had to regularly give what speed she was doing in the car chase. Yeah, look, I th- I'd say she probably actually exceeded what they would really say is the cutoff. But for the sake of drama in a story, I probably exaggerated that a little bit. But you would need to keep in touch with your central communications and, and, and make calls on when you know it's unsafe to continue with a high-speed pursuit. And more so in the, in the last few years, there's, there's been some real you know, tightening of when they're able to take those, you know, make those pursuits when they must actually just give up on them so yeah sandy wallace how do you know so much <laughs> uh, I, I would have been a copper if i hadn't have wanted to be a writer even more i think um when i left school i i, I needed to have a you know a job to look to or a career and my parents said well, look you can't be an author it's not really something that you can re- rely on for income so it came down to well i would have liked to have been a police officer but i was too short there was a height requirement at that time that I failed. So off I went and did various other jobs, which have all fed into my stories and things. Kept an interest in policing, so I, I keep following cases and talking to police. And I think just soaking up things all the time because of that that, in, that genuine interest. Um, so it's amazing what you're actually storing away and then you, you go, ha-ha. There you go. I can use that little <laughs> tidbit that I, I filed away from five years ago that I never thought, you know, at the time what I needed to know that for. So, yeah. Okay. So it's good fun. Now you've got another short story that's uh, shortlisted in the, the Stiletto Awards that's now. That's right. Yes. Yeah. That's very exciting. The awards are this Saturday, so I'm most excited about that. Yes. And a lot of these books, uh, these short stories in the book on the job have won prizes in that's other right. fields. How do you know where to submit short stories yeah, to? Yeah, look, you know, that's a great thing i think mostly i i submit to actual crime short crime competitions now i used to send them out into into the world into lots of different you know areas and and one of them is a finalist in an open competition an international one um which is normally it's probably best to look at your area of interest your expertise and target the type of you know writing you like to do to the type of competition so a lot of googling mm-hmm. and you know just you know keeping in touch on social media and things to find out the, a good place that might fit your sort of story so yeah mm. and then stick to the requirements <laughs> now at the end of on the job this book of our stories short stories you give us Two extracts. That's right. A little dip-ins yes. to your uh, two books that you have in the Rural Crime series. That's right. Tell me why introduced two characters. Uh, well, the, who's Franklin? John Franklin. He's a copper from Dalesford. And then we've got Georgie Harvey, who's a journalist from Melbourne. And they return in, this year in my, their latest uh, novel, is Dead Again. So they've come back together in that one about eight months after Tell Me Why. I thought you did, how you introduced them in the new novel, Dead Again, was very clever. You had, well, um, John Franklin is a policeman, but he had a young policewoman coming to work for him. Yes. And she said, I know about you. I know, you know, I've heard about your multiple murder case. Yes. You saved three people and you won the Va- Medal of Valor. Yes, that's right. It's just enough to, to give you a little bit of background without being spoilers in case people read the books out of order. I don't want to spoil the previous 
read if they yeah. haven't, you know, if they've come in on the second or the third book in the series. So, yeah, just enough. To, and she's definitely got a bit of hero worship come crush yeah. our Sam, but she's a good copper too. And then Georgie, mm-hmm. uh, she, she won, she's a journalist and with a very big exclusive magazine. And as she said, she got her journalist job due to the publicity mm-hmm. around her personal account. Yeah. yeah of the same case, yeah. these missing people. Mm-hmm. So you've got them here at Bullock. What's yes. happening in Bullock? Well, she's actually there two years after a, quite a catastrophic wildfire event to write a feature story uh, to mark the anniversary. Uh, and meanwhile, John Franklin's juggling a spree of vandalism and burglaries and a, and a hot uh, love triangle situation back in Dalesford. But Georgie's story, her assignment, connects with his crimes and they come back together and they have to deal with each other yet again. And she uncovers the truth about oh. the fire, which is... But yeah. she also has to, because it's the anniversary, two-year yeah. anniversary right. of the death of, of the... I, I like how you sort of say she interviews locals, but for a lot of them, you know, with so many people being killed and so yes. many pro- much property lost, she uh, they accuse Georgie of picking off, o- off yeah. our scabs. That's right. Oh. You can imagine how difficult it still is for some people, say after Black Saturday or other big events like that. Yeah, it really does change you. Mm. Well, Sandy Wallace, if you want to have a good read of some uh, uh, rural crime or any crime, On the Job is the story of the short stories and Dead Again and Tell Me Why are the longer crime novels. Thank you, Sandy Wallace. Thank you for having me back again, Jan. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Now, Jan, do you recognise this voice? Welcome to the Little Wilders Program, gladdies and poddies and noddies. On this occasion, the Little Wilders Program is on 3CR. If you haven't guessed, my guest is Philip Adams. So, Philip, welcome to 3CR. It's good to be here. I love 3CR, man and boy. Your latest book is simply entitled Philip Adams' Insights and Reflections. It's a collection of articles from your column in The Australian, along with the occasional speech thrown in. The range of issues tackled is immense. I mean, there's drugs, war, voting, euthanasia, the environment, all noble and important concerns, but you juxtapose these with articles on your cattle dog, George. George is dead. For months, readers have been asking, how's George getting on? And he was getting on fine, no longer cowering when you reached out to pat him. He was even conducting tentative experiments in tail wagging. For the first time in his miserable life, he was having fun. And that's what killed him. In a sense, George was uh, a metaphor for the refugee. He arrived on the farm, whipped, beaten, cowering, angry, snarling, quite dangerous. And uh, I found him tangled up in a dustbin where he'd been trying to uh, forage some tucker. I spent months trying to calm George down. He, He had all the trauma that a refugee has coming from a war zone. He'd clearly been monstrously treated by his owner. And little by little by little, I won him over. Nobody else could get near him. And uh, then the silly old bugger went up and got himself killed by a kangaroo. I mean, in a sense, is that what we do with refugees? They're sort of killed off by the kangaroo, aren't they? Well, they're killed off by us. I was actually going to come to that issue of refugees. But I'm just wondering about the importance of people reflecting on even the simplest of things and the value and importance of that. I've been filing copy, writing columns, uh, 
for um, about 65 years, and I've written thousands of them. So I just sit down, and I come up with an opening sentence. I've got no idea where it's going to end. But there it does, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes later, I've come to the end. Well, I'm going to ask some questions later about your style, but back to the issues, and in subconscience that dates back to 2005, we look at that problem of refugees or the crisis of refugees, and we still haven't, as a nation, come to grips with the issue. One could reasonably argue... Got worse. Well, I mean, some of the other issues there I mentioned before, drugs, voting, given the current situation, euthanasia, the environment, all of these are still extant today. Are we simply pissing into the wind? The the arguments used in the recent Republican debate were word-perfect with arguments at the time of Australia's foundation as a, a colonial nation. Uh, the arguments on refugees are an echo of the worst aspects of white Australia. Uh, our political conflicts over and over and over again repeat the rhetoric and the venom and the, the aspirations that we're historically familiar with. It's almost as though we are, in fact, uh, reliving over and over what is it Groundhog Day (laughs) yes we're caught in a huge Groundhog Day but does that mean we can't change oh I think we do change incrementally and uh, there are probably more people these days more concerned about more issues as a result of an exploding world of, uh, of technologies but can we escape the worst aspects of who we are as Australians with the white Australia policy and things like that? Oh, look, it's bigger than that. If we were having this conversation at my place at home, we'd be sitting in a room full of dead people, Egyptian mummies, for example. And uh, if I was able to bring back one of my Egyptian mummies, he and I and you would have an absolutely recognisable conversation. He would be wondering whether the gods were true. He would be asking, will I fall in love? He'd be saying, why don't the kids do what I tell them? We know this. We know this from the hieroglyphic record. Humans haven't changed fundamentally, and I have a deep suspicion that when we start ricocheting around the the universe and and polluting other planets, we'll be recognisably the same people that we've always been unless of course we become totally irrelevant and are rendered redundant by algorithms and artificial intelligence. Your style of writing, now I want to quote a piece that I think is vintage Adams, it's entitled Vaticant from March 2016 where you tackle clerical abuse in the Catholic Church using the image of emasculated statues yes, a dumpster full of Donners exists in the dungeons. I wrote to Rome, offering to buy the shattered schlongs as a job lot, either to swell my personal collection of antiquities or to flog at a huge profit as executive paperweights or as pets to compete with the pet rock craze. No reply. Let me put that in context. It is a literal truth that there is not a marble penis that survives in the vast Vatican collection of classical statues. No, I did find one. I found one cherub who had not been mutilated. 
and that was because his penis was about the size of a peanut. But all the others had been smashed off with a hammer. And I like to fantasise that it was done by nuns on instructions from upstairs. Go and knock these marble dongs off. Now, some, and then their mutilations were covered by crude plaster fig leaves, which were sort of plonked on the groin. Now, when I discovered this, I realised that the Vatican wouldn't have thrown them away. So I started this correspondence with them, just trying to get my hands on these uh, hundreds of penises. But to this day, they haven't surfaced. And I like to think that there will be a change of policy. Perhaps St Francis, who's showing some progressive tendencies, will tell the nuns that it's time to put them back on. And I have this image of nuns going around with a variation of pin the tail on the donkey, sifting through the penises and trying to find the right groin. But the ribald fun of this, the alliteration, the imagery, the suggestiveness and word association is terribly wicked of you, sir. Well, I love words. I I like to be sort of slightly drunk with them. I'm drawn to being playful with language. And I'm also drawn to being playful about serious subjects because whilst many of the columns are you know, set out to be funny, it's really sugar-coating for being dead serious about something. Well, Even the, the wrecked penises in the Vatican can be seen as a huge metaphor for sexual self-hatred, which then takes us into the Vatican's appalling track record on the abuse of children. You're giving access to the issue through comedy in, in many ways, yeah. or fun and playfulness, but underneath it all is this rather mortifying uh, topic of, of pedophilia. Everything's connected. And, uh, and one of my great joys in, in Shakespeare is the way he will mix up tragedy with comedy. There's a scene in, uh, in Macbeth, for example, the, the Porter scene, where the beginning of the knock-knock jokes, the first knock-knock jokes in history occur in Macbeth when the porter is going to the door And it's a routine, a riff, that could have been written by Spike Milligan, it could have been written by John Cleese, but the comedy doesn't distract from the tragedy, it sets you up to intensify it. But it also dramatically, the the wordplay in that scene is then juxtaposed with the fact that you've just had a murder and heightened with comedy immediately afterwards. So as a dramatist as well, not just his wordplay, but his juxtaposition of, yeah, of scenes right. was, was extraordinary. It's crucially important, yeah. Mm. But as an aside there, in terms of uh, these articles, they're mostly column-length pieces. I'm just wondering, has that discipline of writing for a contained number of column inches framed your thinking? When newspapers started to morph into newspapers, it seemed to me that uh, all of a sudden, Newspapers could be about a lot more things than they'd been in the past. And I started writing columns on all sorts of abstract ideas, which no one had done. I wrote columns on life and death. I wrote columns on meaning. I wrote uh, little philosophical diatribes. And Graham and other editors allowed me to do so. It hadn't happened before. There hadn't been columns of any number. Newspapers had been newspapers, and they weren't overwhelmed by punditry. Now, at that time, you'd have 3,000 words for a newspaper column. 
I used to have two full pages a week. Now it's 600 words, as the attention span of the reader is believed to have shrunk down to that small measure. So whatever the space is, you fill it. Now, another echo in the book is a regret, despite the numerous honorary doctorates, of never having attended university. I mean, wisdom... Well, David, you're one of the generation who got a free university education, thanks to to Goff. I I left school at 15. I hadn't completed um, secondary, let alone had any dreams of tertiary. I had to get away from home because I had a... A, a monstrous stepfather, so out the door. And yes, I'd always had a regret that the nearest I'd ever got to uh, Melbourne University was going down Ligon Street on a tram. I didn't understand what universities were, but they seemed wonderful, magical, mysterious places. Well, I didn't understand when I went there. It was only after I left that I worked out what I should have been doing. Mm. Um, but I'm just wondering, would there have been a university diverse enough to contain atoms. The the thing is, it may in fact have been bad for me. I depend on academics to do the program. I've I've been doing this particular program for almost 30 years, so I've interviewed literally tens of thousands of the brightest people on Earth, and we gather them from every university on the planet. But what I've noticed is here are people who know a lot about a little... Whereas I like to also deal with people who know a little about a lot. Now, knowing a lot about a little is, of course, is crucial. It's absolutely indispensable for scientific, medical, technological advancement. But very often it does produce people who are narrow in their concepts. Well, insights and reflections suggests looking back on the past. I mean, what do you hope readers are going to gain, therefore, from the book? I don't think they'll gain anything. They'd be very sensible not to buy it. <laughs> well, what um, next then for Philip Adams then? Well, I'm running out of nexts. Uh, I'm 78. Um, as I said, I've been writing since I was 13. So, you know, I'm, I'm now... I can't think of anyone, any practising journalist in Australia who's been doing it longer than me. And I'm certainly now the oldest broadcaster at the ABC. They can't wait for me to drop off the tweak. Every day they say, how are you feeling? But whose voice is then going to be heard? Ah, look, there's a queue around the block. But are they as worthy? Are they as diverse? Absolutely, absolutely. Look, I don't have any sense of, of being special. I'm lucky. I've been lucky. I had a a rotten childhood, but it gave me survival skills. It gave me this need to to write, to think, and that prepared me pretty well for the the rest of my life. No, I've been a very lucky old broadcaster. Well, I think I've been lucky to be able to interview you. So, Philip Adams, Insights and Reflections, thank you very much. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, 3CR. I bet you enjoyed that, Dave. I had a lot of fun interviewing Philip Adams. He's sort of one of the figures from even from my childhood, writing articles that I was reading and I listened to Late Night Live and things like that. So, you know, but he's a writer. And so that gave me a legitimate excuse to interview <laughs> to have him. A chat. About, to have a chat about the way he writes.